The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. In our culture, with today's technology, we have developed an extraordinary high level of expectation for the things that we have and even for the people around us. Things can fail us just once or twice and we throw them away because we deem them untrustworthy. I'll give you a few few examples. If your car started 19 out of 20 times this winter, you'd probably consider it untrustworthy. You would take it into a mechanic to get it looked at. If your refrigerator worked 19 out of 20 days this upcoming year, you would probably say it is untrustworthy and you would either get it fixed or you would get a new refrigerator. If a rope that you repelled on held you 19 out of 20 times, you'd probably get rid of that rope because you wouldn't trust it, right? The same works with people as well. If you have a mechanic that is honest with you four out of five times or 19 out of 20 times, you will probably get a new mechanic. If your hairstylist gives you a haircut just as you want it four out of five times, but one out of five times it's something you didn't want at all, you'll probably find a new barber or a new hairstylist. If your mailman delivers four out of the five days that they are supposed to, you will probably file a complaint. The point is this, when we expect something to be done, we have a high expectation and we demand perfection. And when we don't get perfection, we lose trust. And so we trust people to cut our hair, to fix our car, to deliver our mail. And if they mess up just once, then we come back with a word. We come back to fix it. We come back with whatever it might be. God, in his word, gives us promises. He gives us lots of promises. There are over 300 promises fulfilled in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If God fails on one of his promises, just one He is untrustworthy. Last week, we started looking at this story to see how we can drive out fear in our life, how fear can turn to faith and help us in following God, even through very difficult times, even when it takes great courage. We said that we're going this week to look at God's resume, to see if he follows through on his promises, to see if God delivers every single time, If you would please open up to Genesis chapter 46. If you are in the Red Bible, it is page 39. If you are in the Children's Bible, it is page 78. Let me give you just a little bit of a context from last week, if you weren't here. In Genesis 45, Joseph is the prime minister of Egypt, and his brothers come down from Canaan to ask him for food. He reveals his identity to his brothers who sold him into slavery 22 years earlier. Joseph has forgiven them. He has reconciled with them. He even now trusts them. Joseph then reveals his identity to his brothers and tells them to go back to the land of Canaan, to gather his father, to gather the brothers, and to bring everything they have and come to the land of Egypt that Joseph might provide for them. The brothers return to Egypt. They tell their father Jacob the message, and he doesn't believe it's too good to be true. 
But once he sees the provisions that Joseph sends along, he believes. And that's where we pick up today's story in Genesis 46. We'll start in verse 1, and we will look at Jacob's physical journey to Egypt, but also his spiritual journey to Egypt. Before we dig into God's word, let's pray. Lord God, we come to your word knowing that it has something important to tell us today, Lord God. God, we confess that we are a people that are so prone to wander, Lord God. Lord, we are, we're, so, we're so prone to question your goodness, to question your promises, to question if you are trustworthy, God. Lord, we put our confidence in silly things like ourselves, in silly things like circumstance, in silly things like government, God, because we don't believe you're trustworthy. Forgive us, God. Show us again today why we should trust you, why we should put our confidence in you above all else. God, turn our fear into faith that we might follow you no matter what you call us to do, no matter where you call us to go. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Last week, we covered the first two points, but I briefly want to go through them again with you. Genesis 46, verse 1. By the way, we are going to cover a lot of scripture today. We're going to cover 57 verses. I told you that last time. Um, my promises aren't very trustworthy. Today, though, we will cover very 57 verses, Lord willing. Genesis 46, verse 1. So Israel, this is the name that God has given to Jacob. Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to God of his father Isaac. Now, Beersheba was an important place. It was a place where his father Isaac worshipped. It was a place where his great-grandfather Abraham worshipped. And so he stops to worship there because of that. But he also stops there because Beersheba is the southernmost point of Canaan. It's the southernmost point of the promised land. Jacob had never been past Beersheba. And here's Jacob. He has all of his stuff, all of his belongings. He has his wives, his kids, his kids' kids. He has everything. And he's standing at the edge of the land of Canaan, looking into the wilderness, and he's afraid. It continues. God spoke to Israel in a vision of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. God has called Jacob to take this tremendous leap of faith. To leave everything that is familiar with him. To leave, to leave home and to go into this foreign country with strange customs and a strange language. And to establish a new home. To go down to Egypt. It is a frightful thing. And so God comes to him and says, do not be afraid. Last week we talked about how fear can paralyze us from following God's will for our lives. Whether it be God's general will found in his scriptures that is laid out for all of us. Maybe there are certain things in the Bible that you just do not want to follow. There are things in the Bible that you say, you know what? I'm not going to let God's will cross my will. And you are afraid to follow them. You are afraid of the consequences, whatever that might be. Whether it be financial, whether it be time, whether it be giving up a sin in your life. You are afraid to follow God's will. It could also be God's specific will. That he reveals to you through the Holy Spirit and through fellowship with believers on maybe God is prompting you to start up a Bible study in your neighborhood or prompting you 
to start up a ministry of some sort or just prompting you to love the person next door. But fear is keeping you from following the will of God. And so what is the remedy for that fear? How can we conquer that fear? Well, it's by having faith in God. Faith in God and in his promises. Verse 3 through 7 is where we get to that. We see that, that God promises Jacob three things. And they're the same three things that he promised to his father and to his great-grandfather. He promises him a people that they will become a great nation. He promises them a presence that God will be with them. And he promises them a property that they will indeed have the promised land of Canaan. Jacob responds to those promises of God that he has heard from his father and his great-grandfather. And he steps out in faith. Verse 5. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones and their wives, in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Jacob was all in. His fear turned into faith. He believed that God was true to his promises. Now, one important question that we didn't get to last week that we're picking up this week is how can we know that God is trustworthy? How can we have faith like Jacob did, knowing that God will deliver on his promises? What if he's 99 out of 100? What if he's 999 out of 1,000? How do we know God will deliver on his promises every time? How do we know he is trustworthy? I shared with you last week a quote that my friend often says, which is the best indicator of future success is past performance. The best indicator of future success is past performance. And so if we are going to trust God with our future, we need to see if he has proven himself trustworthy in the past. And so let's look at God's resume today. Let's look and see if God fulfills these promises to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to us. Now before we get in to looking at God's fulfillment, I want to remind you of the first audience of the book of Genesis. Anyone know who Genesis was written by? Who wrote Genesis? Anyone know? Moses did, right? And Moses wrote it while wandering in the wilderness with the Israelites. The Israelites have taken a step of faith. They were in 400 years of bondage, and they left to go and pursue the promised land. God speaks to Moses. Moses writes out what God has said to him, and he writes the book of Genesis. And so the first people reading this book are the people wandering in the wilderness, people that are wondering is God going to be faithful to his promise? Will God give us the promised land? Or will we perish? They're wondering, God, where are you? What are you doing? I don't know about you, but I've been there, haven't you? Wandering in the wilderness, you feel far from God, and you wonder, God, are you here? Are you real? Are you going to be true to your promises? Or are you going to let me down? And so that is the audience reading this, a people that are skeptical, a people that are desperate, a people that are needy, a people just like you and me. And these verses are written to reassure him that God keeps his promises always. 
Now, if you look in your bulletin, you'll see there are the three promise, the promised people, promised property, promised present, and we're going to jump around in those, and so it doesn't follow chronological necessarily because the text jumps around in it. But what you'll see is as we read this text, and really as you read the rest of the Old Testament and even the New Testament, you can see God fulfilling all of these promises to one degree or another. So let's start by looking in verse 8 and see how he delivers on a promised people. Now these are the names of the descendants of Israel who came into Egypt. Jacob and his sons, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn. And the sons of Reuben, Hanak, Pelu, Hezron, and Carmi. By the way, hold your laughter to the end. Thank you. Number t- verse 10. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jachin, Zohar, and Shual, the son of Canaanite women. The sons of Levi, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The sons of Judah, Ur, Onan, Shelah, Perez, and Zerah. But Ur and Onan died in the land of Canaan. And the sons of Perez were Hezron and Hamuel. The sons of Issachar, Tola, Puva, Yob, and Shimron. The sons of Zebulun, Sarid, Elon, and Jehalel. These are the sons of Leah. You notice he's listing these out by Jacob's wives. Whom she bore to Jacob and Paddan Aram, together with his daughters, Diana. Altogether, his sons and his daughters numbered 33. The sons of Gad, Ziphion, Haggai, Shunai, Esbon, Eri, Eridai, and Areli. The sons of Asher, Imna, Ishva, Ishvi, Berea, with Sarah, their sister. And the sons of Beriah, Heber, and Malkiel. These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to Laban, excuse me, gave to Leah, his daughter, and these she bore to Jacob, 16 persons. Okay, we're making it through. The sons of Rachel, Jacob's wife, Joseph and Benjamin. Those are much easier. And to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whose, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, Potipharah, the priest of On, bore to him. And the sons of Benjamin, Bela, Becher, Ashbel, Gera, Naaman, Ehi, Rosh, Muppin, Huppin, and Erd. These are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, 14 persons in all. The sons of Dan, Husham, the sons of Naphtali, Jehaziel, Guni, Jezer, and Shillam. These are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to Rachel, his daughter. And these she bore to Jacob, seven persons in all. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born in him to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were 70. Okay, we got through it. Way to go. You see, actually, as you count up the descendants that come to Egypt, there are some different numbers that are thrown out here. Here you see two different numbers. You see 66, you see 70. In the New Testament, you see a different number. These are, it depends how you count the people. If you count the ones who made it, if you count the ones that were pregnant, if you count the ones that were raised in Egypt, that were born in Egypt. But the, the, the big idea is that there was about 70 people that came from Canaan down to Egypt. Now, 70 people is not a nation. 70 people is not even a state or a city. 
maybe a village, probably a tribe. And so God has a long way to go to fulfill his promise. And as we continue through the text, we will see God fulfilling his promise to take this small tribe of 70 people, this family, and turn it into a great nation and to fulfill his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God also made another promise to Jacob. He promised Joseph. In verse 4, God said to Jacob, Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, this is not one of those three big promises that we've been talking about, but God's credibility is still at stake with this promise. God's credibility is at stake with every promise, and we see God fulfilling his promise here. Verse 28, as we continue. He had sent Judah ahead of him, talking about Jacob sent Judah ahead of him, to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariots and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. God delivered on his promise. Jacob survived a long and difficult journey. Joseph was indeed still alive. His sons were not lying to him. God fulfilled his promise. Joseph would be with him till his dying day. No more would he be separated from his son Joseph. He was separated from Joseph when Joseph was 17 years old. And for 17 more years, Jacob would be with his son Joseph. We return to God's promise of a promised people. We see him preparing to deliver on this promise. Verse 31, Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. If we've noticed anything about Joseph thus far, we've noticed that Joseph is extremely wise and he is extremely shrewd. Throughout today's passage, we will see Joseph using political diplomacy to get what is good, what is right. We see Joseph coaching his brothers to explain the truth that they are shepherds, but to make sure that they emphasize it, that they could get the land of Goshen, a land that is important to to Joseph, as we'll see later. Verse 1, we see how this plays out in Genesis 47. By the way, if you're keeping count, we're going to make it through verse 27, Lord willing. Verse 1, so Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land. For there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Verse 5. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your fathers and your brothers in the best of the land. 
Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Goshen was a strategic location for Israel for many reasons, and Joseph knew that it would be a good location for Israel and for the family. The first reason is because Goshen was a fertile area. I think we might have a map up here of it. Do we have a map? There you go. You see Goshen's way up there. This is a map of the Exodus, but you can see up up top that Goshen is a fertile area. Whether it was during the time of this famine, I don't know. But what you do know is that it will be a fertile area if it's not. It's a great place to become a nation, to turn from 70 people into a multitude of people. It was the best of the land, Pharaoh said. Secondly, the land of Goshen was strategic because Joseph was trying to make sure Israel remained distinct. When they were in the land of Canaan, they were intermarrying with the people of Canaan, intermarrying with people who worshiped different gods, and they were led astray. They started adapting their culture they started adapting their sin. And Jacob is putting them in, excuse me, Joseph is putting them in a place where they can remain distinct, where they can remain separate. I think we have another map here. Down here is where, down here is where most of the political center was. And you can see Goshen is up north. And so Jacob was trying to make sure that the people of God were not in the cultural nexus of Egypt, that they were out on their own that they could develop an identity together, that they they would be separate, that they would be distinguished, that they could worship the living God. When we were studying this in community group, our leader asked a great question. He said, what is the difference between separate and distinct? And then we asked a follow-up question, are we called to be separate and distinct like Israel was? It's a great question, and just to give you a brief answer, in the Old Testament, the people of God were called to be separate and distinct. That's why the promised land was such a big deal. This was going to be the land where God was worshipped. This was going to be the promised land. This is where all the people of God were to join. It was to be a city on a hill, a, a bright light. It was to be the place where God would bless the socks off his people. The land of Canaan was a place that major trade routes came through. People were to come through Israel, come through the land of Canaan, and they were to see the people of God, and they were to see the joy of the people of God and the blessing of the people of God, and they were to say, who is that God? I want to worship that God. And so they were this center point for the world, and people would come through, and they would see how God has blessed them, and they themselves then would worship the true God and take it back to their home countries. But when we get to the New Testament, it changes We aren't called to gather together in the promised land and live there. We are actually spread out. We are forced out. We are told to go out. In the Great Commission, Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations. When it's recorded in Acts, we see that Jesus ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus tells them to wait, to not leave yet, to wait for the Holy Spirit. And then we read just a few verses later, verse 8. Jesus said to them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Then we see in Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes upon the believers at Pentecost. 
but they don't spread out to share the gospel as God has called them to do. Not until at least Paul, who was Saul, comes along and persecutes the church. When Stephen is stoned, then they spread out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth as God has called them to do. New Testament believers are not called to be separate, but we are still called to be distinct. Jesus, in his high priestly prayer, tells us that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We're called to be distinct to the praise and glory of God, but we are not to be separate from those that are around us. Pastor Tim Keller tells the story of a woman that attended his church, and he asked her how she had gotten there, and she tells this amazing story. She worked in a big business in Manhattan, New York. If you know anything about Manhattan, it is a very cutthroat pace. Many people work 70, 80 hours a week to get to the top. If you make a mistake, they will throw you under the bus in order to elevate themselves to the top. This is the culture of New York City. Well, this woman was working for this big company, and she made a big mistake that cost the money, the, the company a lot of money. And she was fully expecting to be fired. And when she wasn't fired, she didn't understand why. And so she started to investigate, and she found out that her boss, her superior, took the blame for her. She went to him, and she asked him, why did you do that? You know it was my fault. You know I'm the reason why the company lost all this money. Why did you take the blame for me? And he responded to her saying, listen, I will only tell you this once. I'm a Christian. And I believe that 2,000 years ago, Jesus took the blame for me so that I could live. And if the Son of God could take the blame I deserve, then certainly I could take the blame you deserve. The businessman was in the world, but not of the world. He was distinct. He worshiped the living God. He didn't chase after the idols of this world. He chased after God. He chased after Christ. He was distinct in his love that he showed for those that are around him. And so for this, there are two applications, two questions that we should ask. First this, are you in the world? If you're here today and you trust in Christ as your Savior, are you among unbelievers? Do you have unbelievers into your house? You know, Jesus was ridiculed for eating with sinners and tax collectors. Are you with those that don't know Christ? Or if they cuss, do you send them out and never invite them over to your house? Do you let your children play with unbelievers? Do you let, do you let your family engage with unbelievers that you might be a blessing to them, that you might share the good news of Jesus Christ? The second question is, are you of the world. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. Are you distinct? Is there something different about you that people maybe can't quite put their finger on? I love the question that's asked. Maybe you've heard of it. If the government came along and they were seeking out Christians to throw them in jail, would there be enough evidence against you that your neighbors would bring forth, that your coworkers would bring forth, that, that people at the gym would bring forth, that would convict you and sentence you to jail? Are you distinct? Are you in the world, but not of the world? In the Old Testament, they were called to be not only be distinct, but also to be separate, to be the people of God. So that's what Joseph does. He sets them aside. He puts them in a place where they can grow in their relationship with the Lord, that they can worship him and not be influenced by the culture that is around them. But for us, we are called to go into the world with the power of the Holy Spirit, 
to share the good news of Christ. We also see a promised present. Verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. You know, it's amazing. Jacob comes in to see Pharaoh. Pharaoh is probably the richest, most powerful man in the entire world. The reigning Pharaoh was considered a god, that he was the embodiment of the great sun god. Pharaoh enjoyed all the riches of the world. Ships would come down the Nile just to provide him incense and myrrh, gum and ivory, all the riches of the world. He would have had hundreds of servants that would have done anything at his beck and call. And here comes redneck Jacob. Jacob comes in. He is a Hebrew which the Egyptians despise. He is a shepherd, which the Egyptians consider an abomination. He is a sojourner. He is homeless. He is a beggar. Jacob, in the eyes of the world, is a sorry man. And yet he stands before Pharaoh, the man who has it all and has the audacity to bless him, not once, but twice. It is an audacious thing that Jacob does here. We read, Later in Hebrews, when, he's, when the writer of Hebrews is making an argument for the greatness of Melchizedek, if you don't know who that is, that's okay. But he writes this, But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descendants from the re- them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promise. And then he says this very clearly. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Most people would think that Pharaoh is the superior, that Pharaoh should be the one that is blessing Jacob. But despite all worldly appearances, Jacob was the one who was the greater. He is the one who had received a greater blessing than Pharaoh. You see, Jacob had the one blessing that Pharaoh didn't. Jacob had that one blessing that is greater than all the other blessings combined. Jacob was blessed by God with the presence of God. God was with Jacob, and he knew it. And because he said, he knew that God was with him, even though he wasn't rich, even though he didn't have a land to call his own, even though he didn't have all of these servants, he knew that he had the greatest blessing, which was the blessing of the presence of God. And out of that, he could bless Pharaoh. Now, I don't know about you, but I am so prone to complain to compare myself to other people and say, oh, I wish I had as much free time as that person or as many trips and holidays as that person or as cool of a car as that person. But when we consider that we have been blessed with the greatest gift of all, it is foolish. It is foolish for us to whine and complain about those things. We have been given the presence of the almighty God of the universe, that he is with us wherever we go. The presence of a holy, eternal, loving, and faithful God who is always with us to the very end of the age. This is seen throughout the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation. God is with his people and it continues with his church today. 
we also see in these verses this allusion to the promised property. It's interesting because Pharaoh asked Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob gives kind of this rambling response and includes all of these extra details that doesn't seem to be relevant to the question. In verse 9, Jacob said to Pharaoh, the, the days of the years of my sojourning, my wandering, my homelessness are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my father and the days of their sojourning. For some reason, Jacob thinks it's important to communicate to Pharaoh that he is a pilgrim, that he is a sojourner, that he is a nomad, that he is wandering. Twice in this passage, he communicates that he and his father are sojourners. Jacob recognized something that Pharaoh didn't. Jacob recognized that the riches of this world are not worth comparing to the riches that are to come. We read about this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 through 16. You can follow along on the screen. It says these, talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. The people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Here is Jacob, full of faith, stepping out in boldness. He comes to Pharaoh. This is his one chance to testify to the greatness of God. And he says, I am a sojourner. Yes, you may have all the riches this world can provide, but I am destined for a promised land, for a heavenly home that far exceeds anything you enjoy on this earth. And so God promises us a promised land. Now, how do we know that God will fulfill that promise? Well, as we continue to work our way through the Pentateuch, we see that God does indeed give them the land of Canaan. First, you have Genesis where they go down to Egypt. In Exodus, they become slaves, 400 years of slavery. God delivers them out of Egypt to bring them to the promised land. Leviticus, God is preparing them to take the promised land, giving them moral systems and worship systems to take into the land as the people of God. In Numbers, they come to the verge of the land. Spies go out to look at it. They come back. God tells them to take the land by faith, but they're afraid. They won't believe God. And so they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Deuteronomy, which is the second giving of the law, God gives it to them again, renews his covenant, prepares them once again to take the land. And it is until Joshua that the people of God, by faith, take the land that God had promised. God delivered on his promise. He delivered on his promise to give them the land of Canaan, the promised land. You know, Thanksgiving is coming up, and I read a brief article on what it was like for the pilgrims, those that traveled over. I don't know if you know this, but when they started out, they actually had two boats. There was the Speedwell and the Mayflower. And the Speedwell never took off because they didn't trust it. It was leaky. And so they all piled into the Mayflower, all of these extra passengers, and there were horrible storms. Parts of the boat were bent out of place by the winds. They were tossed around like a cork on the sea. But when they got to the land that they were headed for, 
William Bradford writes this. He goes, after long beatings at sea, they fell with that land, which is called Cape Cod, and they were not a little joyful. They were extremely joyful. You and I are sojourners on this earth. This is not all that there is. You can take the richest person this world has to offer you, and your riches in heaven will be far greater. They will exceed far greater than what this world has to offer you. And so we can hold everything loosely. We don't have to worship it. We don't have to live for this life because we know that we were headed to an eternal promised land where we will be with God for all eternity. Okay, we have to keep moving on. We continue to see how God delivers on a promised people, and you'll see a contrast here, okay? First, the people of God, verse 11. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land. There's that phrase again. In the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh has commanded. And Joseph provided his fathers, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. A pretty sweet situation, right? Someone comes out of college, moves home, mom and dad feeds them. They don't have to worry about eating anymore for, for two years. They're worried that they were going to starve to death. Now all of their needs are met through Joseph. What about the Egyptians? How did the Egyptians fare? Verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Notice how he's working hard for his boss. Verse 15, And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock. If your money is gone, Verse 17, so they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for, their, for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when the year was, end, was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Verse 23, Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves, and for your households, and as food for your little ones. Now let me just 
make a quick comment here. Some people look at this situation and look at the way Joseph is ruling over the people. They are in a dire situation. They are facing starvation. They sell off. First, they use their money to buy food, and then they give their cattle to buy food, and then they give their land to buy food, and they give themselves to buy food. And then Joseph starts giving them seed, and he says, I will take a 20% tax. I don't know about you, but I would love a 20% tax. That would be amazing. But we look at this, and we think, you know, maybe Joseph is being opportunistic. Maybe he's taking advantage of a situation. Maybe he's exploiting these people. But look and see how they respond. Verse 26. I'm sorry, verse 25. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. You know, it's so interesting. Jacob, sorry, Joseph wasn't interested in just giving handouts to the people. He wanted the able-bodied people to work for the food that they ate. We read in the scriptures, if someone is not willing to work, then they shouldn't eat. And so Joseph put them to work. He maintained their dignity. He didn't strip the able-bodied people of their dignity, but he, he supplied for them in a righteous and dignified way. And they respond with praise to Joseph. Verse 26 continues. It says, So Joseph made it a statue concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So we see in this passage the state of the people of Egypt, right? They are in a desperate situation. They are starving. They are selling everything that they have to get food. But how does the foreigners fare? How do the Israelites fare during this time? When the Egyptians are suffering, what is happening to the people of God? Verse 27, Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession of it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. Now this might seem like a throwaway verse, but this is an extremely important verse. Throughout the scripture, and I don't have time to walk through it, but at the beginning God says, be fruitful and multiply. We see him tell Noah, when he comes off the ark, be fruitful and multiply. He tells Abraham, I will make you fruitful and multiply. He tells Isaac and Jacob, be fruitful and multiply. And here we see the first historical fulfillment of that promise. We see here that it says that they were fruitful and multiplied greatly. God is fulfilling his promise. We see later in Exodus when this fruitful and multiplied phrase comes up again. It says, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Some statisticians statisticians have looked at this and seen that the people of God grew about 6% a year, which is an unprecedented growth. But God makes them into this great nation of people. We see God delivers on his promises, even in situations that are not ideal. You know, if I was God, I would have waited till there was a lot of water, a lot of harvest, a lot of everything. But God says, no, I'm going to do it in the midst of famine so that you can know that it wasn't, it wasn't because of circumstance, but because it was the Lord God fulfilling his promise that this people became a great nation. The best indicator, we said, of future success is past performance. As we look at the scriptures, 
as we look at our own experience, we can see that God fulfills his promises always. God is with his people always. God is blessing his people always. God is multiplying his people always. God is distinguishing his people for himself always. God is making a great nation of his people always. God is fulfilling his promises always. Last week, I challenged you to take a leap of faith as God is calling you to do, to step out in faith, to conquer the fear in your heart. How did that go? Did God put something on your heart? Did he call you to do something? If you haven't yet stepped out in faith to do that, would you remember that God's promises are true always, that he will catch you, that he will be with you no matter what? If you're here today and you don't trust in Christ, you need to know that God's promises are not promised to you. His promises are only for those who trust in Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians 1.20, it says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. If you don't trust in Christ, these promises are not promised to you. Because at the cross, Jesus bore your sin in mind to make the promises of God come true. Jesus was killed by his people so that, his, so that we might become his people. Jesus endured hell that we could enjoy heaven. Jesus was separated from God that we for all eternity could enjoy the presence of God. Do you trust God? Do you really trust God? Do you trust that he is true to his promises? He has proven himself to be faithful. We can trust in him. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you that you show us throughout your word, that even when we are faithless, you are still faithful, God, that you provide for your promises, that you fulfill your promises, that you are with us, that you are for us, and that we are destined for the promised land. We praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen.